helping disciple-makers ignite a movement locally and globally. This is the Disciple First Podcast. Now, here's your host, Craig Etheridge. Welcome to the Disciple First Podcast. It's a podcast by disciple makers and for disciple makers. My name is Craig Etheridge. I'm your host. And I'm here uh, as we are listening in to a message delivered by Michael Kelly to First Colleyville Church, the church that I pastor. We asked Michael to come in and share with us about disciple making. And Michael did a fabulous job opening up the scripture. And we've already heard the, uh, the previous podcast, a little bit of that message. I want to give you the balance of that message now. So listen in closely to Michael Kelly. So here is misunderstanding number one. Misunderstanding number one is that discipleship is making Jesus your number one priority. That is a misunderstanding. Jesus does not want to be your number one priority. I don't know if you grew up like I did, but I grew up in the church. I mean, I was, I was in church nine months before I was born. Uh, many of you probably were, were too. And so I developed kind of a pattern when I was a kid in, in, going to, in going to church. And then when I became a student in the student ministry, I developed another pattern. Uh, and the pattern that I developed was a yearly cycle that had, has now followed me into adulthood. So every year during the summer, if you're a student, you we did, maybe you do too, we went to youth camp. We would get on a, a bus with terrible air conditioning and drive a long ways away to someplace incredibly hot, and we would stay for five days, and then on Thursday night of the camp experience, we leave on Monday, come back on Friday, Thursday night is what I would call cry night at camp, okay? So, what happens on Thursday night, generally at youth camp, is that somebody will stand up on the stage and they'll preach a message, and then they'll give an altar call kind of invitation at the end, and everyone will come down, and every seventh grade girl in the place will be weeping uncontrollably, and then you'll go and you'll say, okay, sweetie, can you tell me why you came down front and why you're crying? I don't know! I do. It's because you've had... 17 minutes of sleep in the last five days, and you've existed on Pop-Tarts, okay? So I get it. That's For me, as I grew through the student ministry and then on into the adulthood, there developed this pattern with me that every Thursday night at camp, I would do a self-evaluation where I sort of made a priority list about my life. And I thought to myself, okay, what is the most important thing to me right now? Is it my girlfriend? Is it sports? Is it music? Is it what? And if it was anything other than Jesus, then I would on that Thursday night rededicate my life to Jesus. And then the next year, I would do the same thing, except I would rededicate the rededicated life that I had previously rededicated to Jesus. Such is the cycle that I fell into. It was every couple of months, you, you look and you make a priority list. Is Jesus number one? No, he's not. Rededicate. In a couple, a couple of months, is Jesus number one on my priority list? No, I've got to rededicate my life. Jesus did not die to be number one on my priority list. And he didn't die to be number one on your priority list either. 
Jesus died to tear up the list. So if you want another visual that works better, I think, for what we're talking about here, instead of a priority list that is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, don't think about a list at all. Think about a wheel. See, the difference between a wheel and a list is that no matter what is number one on a list, you still have a segmented kind of life where number one is separate from number two, which is separate from number three. With a wheel, everything is integrated together. So think about that image of a wheel. At the middle of the wheel, there is a hub, and coming out from the hub are these spokes. Now, the hub at the middle of the wheel is what gives the entire wheel all of its definition and meaning. In fact, if you take the hub out of the middle of the wheel and you have all these spokes that aren't locked into the middle of the wheel, you know what you call them? Sticks. And sticks are really good to be used for kindling. But you put the hub in the middle and the spokes lock in, then suddenly you have something that can roll. So if Jesus is the hub at the middle of the wheel, it means that everything else in your life locks into him. And he is not number one on your list. He is the part of your life that gives everything else fundamental meaning. So that means that your marriage is no longer about having two incomes on your tax return. It's no longer about having somebody to get through life with. That you come to understand that your marriage, more than anything else, is a walking, talking, living, breathing illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that the teenage years for you as parents are no longer about just trying to get through and make sure that people get through alive to the other side. Instead, you see this as a pivotal moment in your kid's life for them understanding the importance of the kingdom of God so that they can be launched into their future. When you get a career opportunity, no longer do you think, well, which of these jobs am I going to make more money in? But instead, you've come to see your work as an opportunity for gospel and kingdom advancement. And so you ask the question, by which of these avenues can I more greatly impact the world for the cause of the gospel? Do you see it? Every part of your life locks into the hub at the middle of the wheel, even down to the simplest of things like eating a meal. To where you've got an option to have that fourth piece of cake for dessert. And you think to yourself, am I now eating for the glory of God anymore? Or is my stomach my God? You see it? Everything locks in. And if you find there's a part of your life that can't lock in to the hub at the middle of the wheel, which is Jesus, then it gets cast aside. Now, I know that this seems a little different, maybe even a little radical for us to do, but I believe this is the kind of life that Paul lived. I mean, take a look at how Paul described his relationship with Jesus from Philippians chapter 3. He says, but whatever was a gain to me, I've now considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider everything else as filth, rubbish, refuse, excrement, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That doesn't sound like somebody who has a list at all. It sounds like an addict. 
Someone who filters all of their desires, all of their priorities, all of their resources, all of their everything through this one key central goal, to know Jesus and to make him known. That's the life of the disciple. We deal with this with other things all the time. I remember several years ago, my my older son named Joshua, who was now 11, back when he was five or six years old, he went through this, you know, tried and true uh, passage into, you know, into childhood that I think most every American young man has gone through for the last 30 years, and that's your first viewing of Star Wars. So we, we plug in Star Wars A New Hope and, and watch it when he's six years old, and he thinks it's the greatest thing that he's ever seen, because, you know, up to that point, he's basically seen Barney, and now it's the, there is this. He thinks it's amazing, and for for weeks after that, everything was about Star Wars, Star Wars all the time. As a matter of fact, I remember, you know, a couple of weeks later, my wife and I were, were taking a walk in our neighborhood, and I'm pushing in the stroller uh, our other son, who was uh, about a year old at the time, and then Joshua and his sister Andy were walking behind us, uh, and so we're going through the neighborhood, and I hear uh, behind me this whoosh. And I turn around and my little girl is laying on the ground. She's two years old, laying on the ground, grabbing the back of her leg in pain. And her older brother, Joshua, is standing over her with a stick like this. She go back and said, buddy, what is going on? We don't treat each other like this. Why would you do that? And he looked up at me, serious as he could be, and said, daddy, I don't know what to tell you. She was an imperial spy. For him, he had had an experience with something that, has cap- that had captured his imagination to the degree, that had won his heart to the extent that it was as if he had put on Star Wars tinted glasses and was now viewing the rest of the world through that. This is what happens through the course of discipleship, that by his grace and power, the Holy Spirit comes with us and reminds us of the truth of the gospel every single day. And we move deeper and deeper and deeper into our knowledge of the gospel. And as we do, the Holy Spirit fashions those gospel-tinted lenses that we put on our face, and we come to see everything, everything, everything in light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand that discipleship is about making Jesus number one on your priority list. It's bigger than that. Misunderstanding number two is this, that discipleship means doing big things. Discipleship means doing big things. So I think most of us, most of us at one point in our lives or another, if we've gotten really serious about following Jesus, we really want to go all in with this thing, then we have asked the Lord to use us in some mighty way. Maybe it's we have in our minds the ability we're going to lead a student-led revival at our school. Or, or, or maybe it is that there, we, we want hundreds of people to come and, and hear us preach the gospel. Or maybe we want to find ourselves writing songs that millions of Christians across the globe are going to sing. Or maybe we want to start some kind of business that in the nonprofit arena is going to impact literally the future of an entire nation. So we have these huge aspirations, but can I tell you something about life that I think you'll resonate with? 99% of all of us are going to spend our whole lives doing regular things. Everyday stuff. Changing diapers, going on the same commute, working at the same job, paying the same bills, 
being married to the same person, serving in the same church over and over and over again. These small, everyday opportunities you have are the guts of discipleship. And if you spend your life waiting for some huge, gigantic, enormous opportunity to come along, you'll never do anything. I remember when I was in college, I actually grew up not far from here. I I live in Nashville now, but I grew up in a town called Canyon, Texas. You guys know Canyon at all? Anybody's just south of Amarillo? Uh, There's a university in Canyon uh, that is called West Texas A&M University. My dad has been a statistics professor at this university for 35 years. He's retiring this year. I went to college there. I went to college at West Texas A&M, the same town that I grew up in. And one of the reasons that was great for me is because it meant I got to interact with my dad nearly on a daily basis, even as I was taking him for three statistics class. Oh, man, this, I, I feel like I just had P, PTSD just now thinking about that. <laughs> so three statistics classes with, with my dad. Also happening at that time was something really, really crazy on our campus. There were a group of students who had decided that they wanted to start a worship service just outside on the lawn campus. So at that time, the population, the student population was about, I don't know, 6,000, maybe 6,500, something like that, not a huge school. And there were this group of students that started a worship service that was two hours, all we would do is sing, two hours. It started at 10 p.m. every Thursday, p.m., 10 p.m. Go for two hours, midnight. And it grew to have over a thousand people there every single week. So you think about that. That is a state sponsor. That's a state school, non-religious. One-sixth of the population gathering outside every week to sing. It's crazy. Now, of course, if you got Friday morning classes, you had a, a little quandary on your hands here because you would go to worship at 10 and worship till midnight. And then, of course, you needed to go hang out and so you get back to your dorm at 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And then you're in bed by 3. And then, well, most times you would miss your Friday morning class. That's, what, that's just the way that it happened. So I remember one particular Friday morning, I rolled in uh, to my dad's office at about 8.45 on Friday morning, just, you know, not shaved, bleary-eyed, rubbing my eyes. And he said, hey, 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 it's 8.45. Don't you have accounting at, at 8 this morning? And I said, well, yeah, I do. But man, I was out so late worshiping last night. <laughs> it's crazy, Dad. It was awesome. So I went on to tell him about it. And, and my dad, as only he can do in, in my life, quiet, steadfast, rock-solid, generous, humble man, took it all in and said, you know, son, I'm really thrilled with what's happening on the campus right now. I've, I've never seen anything like it, not when I was a student and not since I've been a professor. I've never seen anything like it. But there are those of us who are Christians on this faculty who have tried the best we can to share the gospel with our co-workers And when the Christian students on this campus are consistently absent, late, or the worst students in the class, it makes it exponentially more difficult for us to do so. So you might think about that the greatest impact for the gospel that you could have at this period of your life 
is to make an A in accounting. And, you know, as a college student, of course, you blow it off. Yeah, right, A in accounting. <laughs> okay. There is wisdom there. That here was an opportunity of small faithfulness that I was neglecting because I was bowing at the altar of the big and the exciting. Don't sell your soul for grandeur. Exercise the small moments of faithfulness that God has before you. I love this. This is from Paul again in Colossians chapter 3. So he says, So you have been raised with Christ. So seek what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what's above, not on what is on the earth. For you died, okay? You died. That's what he's talking about. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, put to death. So do you see this? Paul is saying, when you came into Christ, you died. Therefore, die. You believe the gospel, you were changed on the inside. Now every day you got the opportunity to die, 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 die. But what does death look like to Paul? He says this, put to death what belongs in your earthly, worldly nature. Sexual immorality, purity, lust, evil desire, greed. That's idolatry. So the Lord might not be calling you to lead a nationwide revival. But you know what he is calling you to do? To not be greedy. The Lord might not be calling you to win everybody on your campus to Christ. But you know what he is calling you to do? He is calling you to be pure. We like to think of God asking us, when it comes to discipleship, to write a blank check with our lives. To write a blank check and give it to him. And in a way, that's exactly what we do. We give him that check and say, everything I've got, all my money, all my aspirations, all my hopes, all my dreams... All my talents, all my resources, it all goes to you, Lord. Use it as you will. But here's the thing about God, at least in my experience, and maybe yours too, is that even though he has the blank check, he cashes it a little bit at a time. He cashes it when you're the one that needs to stand up because you refuse to gossip about the other person. He cashes it when even though you've got a lot going on in your life right now that you choose to volunteer and serve in the church. He cashes it when you're the one that even though the rest of the world is fixated on sexual desire that you're choosing to live in purity. He cashes it that even though you might be going through a rough patch in your marriage right now that you refuse to leave. He cashes it not all at once but 38 cents here and 50 cents here and $7 here and $10 here. And over the course of a lifetime of faithfulness, it adds up to a monumental amount, but it has come out of your account a little bit at a time. Don't misunderstand discipleship as being all about big things and neglect the small moments of faithfulness before you. And then finally, there's this. The third misunderstanding is that discipleship is about loss. So we could, we could think that is true, right, very easily because we've talked a lot about death and a lot about 
giving over your desires to God, a lot about losing your dreams and hopes and aspirations, we might be tempted to walk out of here and think, well, that's, that's what Jesus wants me to do. It's all about loss, losing everything, so that's what he's calling me to do. And in a way, he is, but it is a misunderstanding to think that that is ultimately what Jesus is after in your life. Let me take you back to Luke chapter 9 in the text, where Jesus says, if anybody wants to come with me, got to deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Jesus is not telling you to lose your life. He doesn't want you to lose your life. He wants you to find your life. But true life can only be found on the other side of loss. Jesus doesn't want you to settle with an earthly life, with earthly desires and earthly passions. He wants you to look bigger than that. And he knows that in order to get to the other side, you have to walk through loss to get to the gain on the other side. Jesus is not telling you, lose your life, lose your life, lose your life. Jesus is saying, find your life. He's pleading with you. Find your life. Don't settle with this little, itty, bitty experience of life. Know that I have fullness of life with me. But the only way that you're going to get there is through walking the road of loss. There's something better on the other side. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian author, said it like this, that we, when we are overcome by the pleasures of this world, we are like children content to sit in our backyard making mud pies because we have no idea what a holiday at the seashore is like. The psalmist would say in Psalm 16 that in his presence there is fullness of joy and eternal pleasures at his right hand. Jesus himself would say that I came to give life and not just life but abundant life. Jesus is saying to us this morning, find your life. Don't settle for a life of half-hearted commitment and easy fellowship. Go all the way. It will cost you but in the end, you will find true life. Well, that was Michael Kelly unpacking discipleship and what that looks like in your life and in your church. If you'd like more information about how to make disciples and make disciples, how to ignite a movement of disciple making, go to disciplefirst.com. Disciplefirst.com, it's your one-stop shop for disciple-making resources. Also, you can look for a Flashpoint conference. They're all over across the country. So uh, go to flashpointconference.com, theflashpointconference.com, or you just go back to disciplefirst.com and click on the Flashpoint icon to find a Flashpoint conference coming to a city near you. And until then, go make disciples.